The information contained in this podcast is an expression of opinion and does not constitute investment advice. This is the Gold Money Podcast with Dominic Frisby, keeping you up to date with expert opinion on precious metals and the markets. Hello and welcome to the Gold Money Podcast, hosted in association with Frisbee's Bulls and Bears with me, Dominic Frisbee. Today, on the 18th of December, I am talking to Positive Money's founder and director, Ben Dyson. Positive Money is a UK not-for-profit research and campaign group which is trying for monetary reform. It believes that the root cause of many of our current social, economic and environmental problems lies in the way that we allow money to be created. That is, in fact, the statement that is on the front page um, of its website. So, Ben, it's a, it's a real pleasure to be talking to you. I must say I, I couldn't agree more that the root causes of um, many of our current social, economic and environmental problems lies in the way that we allow money to be created. So why don't we, why don't we start by, by you describing to us how that is? Sure. Well, uh, this is something that's not very well understood by, by most people and also by most policymakers. Um, the system that we have at the moment today means that 3% of all the money that we use is created by uh, the Bank of England, so by the government. And the other 97% is created by banks. And these are not special banks, so they're banks that we use every single day. And the reason for this is, is that the type of money that is created by banks is actually just numbers in a, a computer system. It's electronic money that is created when banks make loans. And this works through the, the accounting process they make. When you go into a bank to take out some money to buy a mortgage, that money isn't coming from somebody else's life savings. It's actually just typed into your account, effectively out of nothing. Um, and it's all legal. It's all through the accounting process. But um, what this means is that we have a, a monetary system where the money in the economy depends on the banks. And, you know, we've seen the way that the banks have behaved over the last few years. So we, we think this is at the root of the financial crisis, the fact that while just 3% of money comes from the state, the other 97% comes from the banking sector. And I mean, when you say it's created out of nothing, um, why don't you just elaborate on that? Because it's, it's slightly more complicated than that, isn't it? Well, what it is, is um, essentially over, over time, money has changed. And I can give you a sort of historical example that makes this quite easy to understand. In the past, when you put money into a bank, and we're talking sort of the 1800s here, uh, you put your sort of your coins or your, your metal money into a bank, and they give you a piece of paper to show that you'd put the money in the bank. And this money, this uh, piece of paper would be a receipt for that deposit that you've made. And it would say you've deposited five pounds. Um, over time, people started to use these receipts to make payments to each other because it was more convenient to pass the paper around than to go back to the bank to get the coins and then, you know, for the shopkeeper to have to go back to put the coins back in the bank. Yeah. So, um, so over time, this, this paper money became accepted as being as good as, as the metal money. Yeah. But the, the paper money was all issued by banks. So the more of it they, they issued, um, the more they could lend and the more profit they would make on their loans. So with those incentives, they actually created too much and it caused inflation, it caused instability in the, the economy. 
1844, the government passed a law to say from, from this point on, banks will not be allowed to print their own paper money. And that's why nowadays, if you print your own money at home, you get uh, you can expect the police to come through the door. What's happened since then, though, is you've had the whole, um, you know, the rise of essential, first checkbooks, and then following that, we had debit cards, and now we have internet banking. And actually, 99% of all the payments that take place by the value take place electronically. And those, uh, so those numbers that you see in your account, which a lot of people assume represent some pile of cash in the bank, they're actually just electronic accounting entries. Um, so these accounting entries are created when somebody takes out a loan. So what happens is you sign a contract to say that if, if you're borrowing 250000 for a house, you sign a legal contract to say that you repay that 250000 And that goes on the asset side of a bank's balance sheet. And then on the opposite side, the liabilities, they just type £250,000 into the account. And that uh, liability is essentially the money that you see, uh, the numbers that you see in your bank account, which allows you to then go and buy the house. So every time somebody borrows uh, from a loan or an overdraft or a, uh, a mortgage, new money is created, the same value of the loan. So, but, so the system relies totally on expanding debt to 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 function completely and and this is the problem that we have today is that we need um <clears throat> in the current system we need more money to come into the economy uh to to get things moving but the only way that that can happen is if we encourage people to go into more debt which is why you see completely crazy things like we had a crisis that was caused because people had too much debt and the government's first response was to lower interest rates to make it cheaper for people to borrow more you know, this is um, it's nonsensical, basically. Now, why don't you... The reason I said it's slightly more complicated than that is that you, you've described how money is created, you know, through the process of lending, and you've used the example of a house. Um, can you describe... Uh, well, I've got two questions for you. That Just backtracking a little bit, that figure that you gave us at the beginning of the interview, 97% of money is created by the private... by, by banking... Um, is it, does the same numbers apply to the states? Is it the same ratio of 97% to 3%? Yeah, in the United States, it's more or less the same figure. Um, this, uh, the figure varies in some countries, but it's always around, you know, 95% will be in the form of uh, electronic deposits in banks. And just about 5% or less will be in the form of uh, physical cash. So we have a system that relies on... Uh, the, the continuous creation of debt in order to to um, in order for the the system of money to keep um, functioning um, and ninety percent seventy does doesn't it then become uh, I, I mean what what portion of of uh, new money creation goes into houses because I mean surely that now there's a there's a total vested interest in pushing up house prices uh, so that yeah. more money gets created I'd like to know what what proportion of money that gets created goes into um, is created for the purposes of lending against a house, and what portion is in corporate finance, and what you know? What, yeah, yeah. How does it? What is the pie chart there? Well, we. Um, I mean, this this is an important point because uh, a lot of people have this uh, idea that what banks do is take money from savers and invest it in businesses. Um, we looked at how much new money had been created by the banking sector in the ten years before. Uh, running up to 2007. 
just 13% of all, all the money that they created went into uh, real businesses, into the part of the economy that creates jobs and contributes to the, uh, the GDP figures, the, the economic growth that the government is so concerned about. Uh, 40% of all the money that they created went straight into property. So it went into mortgages. So this is why why house prices is have gone up. Is that residential so property or or, or um, commercial property or or, or both? Uh, both both together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but this this is why house prices went up uh, so high and why housing is now so unaffordable. Um, when you hear people saying, "Well, it's it's that there's too many people and not enough houses," um, you know, it, it's, they're saying it's essentially supply and demand. But um, over twenty years of two thousand seven, the uh, number of the, the population grew by 8% and the housing stock, the number of houses, grew by 16%. So actually the, the number of houses in the UK was growing faster than the population. Um, the only thing that really explains why house prices went up so quickly is the fact that house uh, mortgage lending in that same period of time went up about fivefold. Um, so expensive houses are entirely due to money creation by the banking sector. 40% of new money creation goes into the property market. 17% goes into funding new business. Where? What about the other 33%? Yeah, well, 10%... Oh, sorry, 43%. Yeah, that's it. Um, <laughs> 10% is... Um, uh, 10% goes into consumer finance, so things like credit cards and mortgage... Not yeah. mortgage, sorry, uh, credit cards and personal loans. Um, and then the remainder... Uh, which is about 37%, is straight into the financial markets. So this could be anything from commodity trading to uh, financial market speculation. Um, and it also includes the mergers and acquisitions, you know, the corporate buyouts, um, which uh, which have been shown actually to, to usually destroy the value of the, uh, the company. Yeah. yeah. What a horrible, horrible situation where we actually have a system whereby the only way for it to stay afloat is asset price inflation, speculation and consumption rather than uh, <laughs> manufacturing and, and other forms of, of, you know, real wealth creation. Uh, it's, it's funny that you mentioned wealth creation because um, essentially one of the things that we make a big point of is that the banking system now has completely lost interest in wealth creation. Its business model is about wealth extraction. It's um, it's become a parasite on the real economy. It, the the profits of the banks are actually extracted from the rest of the real economy, but the banks have lost interest in investing in that real economy, so they're not helping the economy to grow. And at the same time, uh, their actions are pushing up house prices, which is bad for business, really, because if your if your employees need higher salaries because their um, cost of living is so high, then that's another expense for the business, um, and it makes it harder to to stay in business. Um, so actually, we, we, we think the banking sector right now is is counter to wealth creation. Um, now, Ben, how old are you? I'm 27. Right. So because uh, I say I'm 43 and I say everyone, anyone in the UK born after about 1980. Um, so basically anyone who's under the age of 32 or 33 or something, it's particularly in the southeast, is just never going to be able to afford a house. And this is because... The, the, the system of money creation uh, benefits those who are closest to its issuance at the expense of people who are furthest from its issuance. And those who are closest to its issuance include people who already owned assets before 
the process of inflation set in and made assets unaffordable. And this is why anyone under the age of about 33 has just been totally priced out. Um, as a 27-year-old, well, I've got two questions. Do you feel angry about that? I presume you do, and that's why you've ended up doing what you're doing. And my next question is, do you, do you see, do you agree that this process of in, inflating the money supply um, benefits those closest to its issuance at the expense of those furthest from it? Um, yeah, well, well, it certainly does. Uh, those people who bought houses with money that was created by the banks in 2000, for example, benefited hugely over the next seven years. Those people who bought their houses in 2007 at the peak are the ones that really lost out because they're now saddled with the debt um, on a you know on a house that that the price was completely artificially inflated. Um, so it, it benefits those. Um, and in, in terms of money creation, when people discuss money creation, they often assume that it's always by the state and that it's the state that's benefiting from the money creation. But as we've as we said, 97 percent of money creation is done by the banking sector. So uh, it's those people who borrow the money first that benefit most because they they get in before the, the house prices are inflated. Um, and then the other people that benefit are obviously the banks, because um, it's interesting that the, the Bank of England, uh, one of the officials from the Bank of England was describing how um, how by printing paper money, they can buy assets essentially with, uh, you know, with something that isn't really worth anything. Um, but that's essentially what the banks do as well is they buy interest bearing assets. So mortgage contracts and your uh, promise to keep paying that mortgage over 25 years, they buy that with um, an entry into a, an account. And it's um, what it's meant is that by, by leaving the banks to create the nation's money, they've been able to acquire well, about £2.2 trillion worth of debt from the public to the banks. And we calculated from Bank of England figures that every year the interest being paid on all the, um, all the UK public's debt, um, I'm talking families and households here, not the government, but the interest being paid on that is anything between £108 billion up to about £250 billion depending on uh, the year in question. Um, so this is a, you know, it's a transfer from the public to the banking sector of about eight percent of GDP um, just for their privilege and role in creating money. In your statement on your website, you discuss, um, you mentioned the root cause of many of our current social, economic and environmental problems lies in the way that we allow money to be created. I think we've, we know about the, the you know, the social problems include the alienation of a, of a, of a generation, um, all sorts of economic distortions, social distortions, the certain social groups getting very rich at the expense of other um, <coughs> groups that genuinely create wealth. I want to ask you, what are some of the environmental consequences of our system of money? Right, well, this this is an area that we think uh, needs a lot more research and we need to get um, academics to take some interest in this. But just to give you a couple of examples, um, the instability, the economic instability that's caused by this current monetary system um, eventually leads to recessions and financial crisis. Now, when that happens, all of the environmental protections that have been built up over years uh, get swept aside because you have governments saying, well, you know, we can't afford to uh, to be concerned about the environment right now because we're in a recession and we need to create jobs. Um, so you have this, um, it, it leads to some a lot of very short-term thinking 
with regards to the environmental issues and also the the energy issues as well um, because of the instability, essentially. Then the other aspect of it is that you have, when you put the entire uh, society and economy into a position of debt, so, I mean, essentially, we have to be in debt to the banks in order for any money to exist. If there was no debt in this current system, there would be no money. So when you put society into that position of being permanently in debt, it becomes essentially a fight to get out of debt. And those that sort of fight to get out of debt, when it's by businesses and individuals, <clears throat> sorry, um, means that there's a lot of uh, economic activity that isn't necessarily needed. You know, uh, people are fighting to try and sell things and to produce things to, to earn the money to pay off their own debts. Um, it's difficult to say how different things could be if if we didn't have the debt. I mean, one thing that you notice is that when people um, when people have enough money to live on, they then relax and spend less time working and more time doing the things they want to do. And when you have everybody in debt and everybody working for the next forty years simply to pay for the the house that they're living in, uh, it doesn't leave a lot of time or income left to be more you know, conscious about the way you live and the impact that has on, on the world. Um, so it, it creates this sort of very short-term uh, scarcity mindset economy, um, which is, I, th- I think, is, is leading us to not really consider the long-term things that need to be done. And again, this is all, it's all rooted in the monetary system. It's all rooted in allowing banks to create money. And just adding to what you what you just said there i mean it it definitely breeds a a a short term thinking a pressure to service debt um i can sum it up by perhaps saying our monetary system leads to malinvestment and waste yes yes definitely that's it okay we we're all agreed that there's something very wrong what do you propose to do to reform our system of banking well what we would like to do is uh, three money things. Money and banking, I should say. Go on. Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah. This is, I mean, there's a lot of other reforms that need to be made to the banking system, but we're talking specifically about the monetary system and how money is created. So the three things we'd like to do is, firstly, remove the power of the banks to create money. And you can do that through some, uh, essentially, changes to the rules that banks operate by, Um it's, I won't explain it verbally. It's easier if you can see diagrams and things. But um, then you, the second thing we want to do is return that power to an independent, transparent, accountable body. So we're not suggesting that we give the power to create money to politicians because you know, we, we think they probably abuse it just as badly as the banking sector has done. Um, but we want to see that power to create money with a, an independent body. Uh, it's transparent, it's accountable, and that you know, we should all be able to see exactly who is making these decisions about creating money and how much they create and then where that money goes. Um, then the third thing is that we, uh, once the committee or this public body has decided how much money needs to be added to the economy, then that money will be transferred over to the government. And then it's for the government to decide, as with all tax revenue, um, how that money is spent into the economy. Now, there's a few uh, key differences from this system and the current system. Uh, the first one is that when this public body sees that inflation starts to rise, then it has to stop creating money. 
And that's in complete contrast to the current system where if inflation starts to rise, the banks usually see it as a sign of a, a, a good, healthy, growing economy, which actually drives them to create more money. So with the current system, it's completely pro-cyclical. And the, um, the reform system would be self-regulating, uh, basically. Um, and then the other major difference is that instead of the money being put into the economy as debt, so that whenever new money is created, new debt is created at the same time, uh, by creating money and then spending it into the economy, you can use that newly created money to pay down the existing debt. So we calculated that if you keep with the current system, then uh, essentially the debt is, is going to keep going up um, along with the money supply. Um, if you reform the system, it's actually possible to reduce household and family debt from about 1,400 billion down to about 400 billion. So this, um, you know, just imagine how much of an impact that would have on, on, you know, on people essentially to, to have such a low debt relative to where we are right now. And how do you actually make the transition? Well, it's, um, there's two elements to it. And we're releasing a book in January called Modernizing Money, which explains over about 330 pages exactly how this can be done. Um, but the two elements are essentially that on, there's a, there'll be a specific date when you switch from uh, the accounting rules and the system that governs the current system to a reformed one. And really, that's that's quite a technical behind-the-scenes thing. Most customers of banks will not even notice any difference. Then there's a, a longer period of about 10 to 15 years, which involves uh, essentially clearing the hangover of debt from the old system. Um, and that's going to take longer. And is there an example of a society today or a society in history that's used a system akin to this? Well, there's a few examples dotted about. Um, I mean, unfortunately, nowadays, almost every country is using the current system and almost every country is in financial dire state, dire straits. Um, but in the past, we've seen uh, in Guernsey, for example, uh, Guernsey actually in the late uh, 19th century and early 20th century um started issuing its own paper money. Uh, the banks were issuing their paper money and Guernsey's uh, local authority said that we're going to issue paper money to uh, to fund infrastructure improvements and the development of the uh, of the town there. Um, and they they managed it well. There was no inflation. They used that money to invest in in productive, uh, you know, infrastructure uh, to develop the roads and to develop the uh, the buildings of the the city. And uh, it actually had a really, really beneficial effect on Guernsey. Now, the question is, um, when you talk about the state creating money, people always say, well, this is, this is going to be hugely inflationary. And they talk, to, they talk about things like Zimbabwe and Weimar Republic Germany. But you have to ask yourself, who's, who's likely to create too much? Who's most likely to create too much money? Is it going to be the committee that is charged with only creating money whilst inflation is low and stable? Uh, with the rule that when inflation starts going up, they have to stop? Or is it the banks who, the more money they create, the more interest they receive and the more profits they'll make? Um, so we think there's more danger of inflation if you leave banks uh, with the power to create money than if you return that to some public uh, body. Now, the problem I have with the sol solution that you suggest is that it, re it requires a, a competent, independent public body. Uh, and there's a lot of scope for human error, 
corruption and who knows what else within that system. Um, isn't just using metal as money again a simple way of achieving the independent, non-debt-based currency that you talk about? I think, um, I think theoretically... It sounds very good. I, I think we have to, you know, we have to recognize the situation we're in at the moment. Um, what seems to happen with, uh, so talking about gold, for instance. Well, um, I'm talking about all metal, actually, but but anyway, but go on. Talk okay. specifically okay. about gold, that's fine. Well, I mean, realistically, governments aren't going to give up uh, their national currencies. They're not going to give up the pound or the sterling or the dollar. Um, so we could talk about backing the national currency with with metal. Um, but what has happened in history is whenever that system hasn't worked well uh, for governments or for the economy is they've just said, well, we'll, we'll ignore it. Uh, we'll suspend the gold window or, yeah. or whatever. Um, so I, I don't think that saying let's go back to gold is really going to change anything because you still, especially if you keep the current banking system where banks can create money. But that's um, not the failing of the metal. That's a failing of the administrators not sticking to the discipline of the metal. Yes, yeah. But um, my view on it is that rather than uh, trying to peg the currency to some arbitrary uh, commodity, um, we should have money only created in line with uh, the growth of the economy. And probably the simplest way of seeing whether the money creation is in line with the economy is uh, through the inflation figures. So if you're creating money faster than the economy is growing, you can expect to see inflation going up. Um, it but then that can requires, bit... sorry to keep talking over you, but then that requires accurate measures of inflation. And I mean, you and I both know how those numbers are fudged to suit whatever the agenda is of the day. Yeah. I mean, there's so many different, I mean, even the word inflation no longer means what it was, what it originally meant such as the distortion that's taken place. Yeah, we well we obviously have to work on that and find a better measure of inflation because it's, you know, it's disingenuous for the Bank of England to say they've managed inflation whilst house prices have been rising at, you know, 10 or 15% a year. Yeah. Um it's it's just completely short-sighted, but um but you you still yes, you have this this issue of if there is a committee that's responsible for creating money then they can make mistakes. Um, the question is, uh, comparing it to the current system, can it possibly be worse? And uh, if you have, there is no feedback mechanism for the banks. They will create as much money as they possibly can for as long as they can until the system collapses. Um, what we're putting in place with this proposal is actually a feedback mechanism where if the money creation is excessive, then it will feed through into inflation. Obviously, you have to measure that well. And then that would stop the money creation. That would give you a, a limit. So it becomes, whereas the current system is pro-cyclical, this would be uh, counter-cyclical. It would be self-regulating. You, it's, it's interesting. You talk about money creation, and then you talk about inflation, meaning rising prices. But the original definition of inflation is money creation. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think we, um, you know, you have to use the terminology that's in use today. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I, I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, there was no criticism there. It was just, a, it was... Uh, merely, um, yeah, yeah, just enlightening the distortion that's gone on. Now, yes. um, you rightly mentioned that governments aren't going to hand over their, aren't going to relinquish their their power over money, and I agree. I think that's extremely unlikely. But one thing we're seeing emerging on the internet is the rise of alternate currencies. We've got gold and silver being used in some cases to make and receive payments. Gold certainly being used as a means to store wealth. 
Um, we have Bitcoin. We have all sorts of barter websites and other systems of 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 making and receiving payments that are emerging. And, and it's inevitable that more are going to rise. Um, there's all these um, systems that are being used on, on mobile phones to make and receive payments. Um, what do you think about competing currencies and, and the kind of inexorable rise of competing currencies? What chance is there that they're just going to replace government money? Yeah, well, I, th- I think this is um, it's quite exciting, all the, the innovation and developments that are going on. And I think that I should really be encouraged. Um, I think these competing currencies and alternative uh, payment systems are going to become more and more important over the uh, the future. But I don't think that it would be possible for them to completely replace national currencies. I mean, the biggest thing is simply that people use the national currency from when they're children, essentially. It's so deeply ingrained that there will always be more trust for the national currency than there is for um, alternatives, I think. In, in, in the majority of people. Do you think there'll be more um, trust in national currencies than there would in gold? Well, isn't, uh, the, isn't the strength of national currencies born out of the fact that they were once tied to gold? I think the strength of the national currency is that you can walk into any shop and accept okay, yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's, that's why, um, you know, you can't walk into a lot of shops and, and buy something with gold. Um, I think also some people will have concerns about whether the, you know, the, the rising gold prices actually represent a bubble. So, um, yeah, just be- and, and just to back you up on one thing, people still flood to government bonds in times of panic. They're not yet flooding to gold. So, yeah, yeah. I, I kind of agree with you, even though I'm contradicting myself. Go well, on, carry on. Yeah, so I, th- I think there's just that thing. Um, I mean, this is why I focus on on reforming the national currency, because it's so deeply ingrained into the system that I don't think it's possible to completely circumvent it with with new ideas and new um, innovations. But I think... I think having more, you know, diversity in, in how these systems work. If, if people actually understood um, that, for example, over the last 40 years, the banks have increased uh, the quantity of pounds in the economy by 11.5% a year on average, every single year for the last 40 years, then I think they'd be much more skeptical. And yet, you know, people, people think it's just that prices are going up. They don't really understand that it's this huge creation of money. And if I could show you the chart of what, the money... What's the source supply. of that statistic, the 11% growth? I mean, that's basically effectively saying we have 11% inflation. It's just not gone into places where inflation is measured. Well, exactly, yeah. The, the source is the Bank of England statistics for money supply. Uh, it's a, a data series called M4. Um, yeah, and the inflation, you know, uh, even Mervyn King has been guilty of this. He, he gave a speech recently where he was saying... Um, inflation over the last 20 years has been 2.1% and our target has been 2% uh, and therefore we've managed the economy and inflation quite well. What he didn't mention was that, as I said before, 40% of all the money that the banks create goes straight into property. Only 10% of it goes into consumer spending. And that's why you have very little inflation in consumer prices, which is what they measure when they talk about inflation. And yet you have absolutely enormous house price inflation. And of course you have... Uh, you don't have consumer price inflation because there's uh, competition which is driving down uh, prices and increasing productivity and therefore, uh, you know, it's, it's competition drives down prices. But, but also, the more expensive houses are, the less, uh, less disposable income people have to actually spend in shops. That, that too. So, uh, yeah, so when house prices are inflated by the monetary system, it's actually... Uh, it actually holds prices down in, in the 
uh, part of inflation that the government is uh, measuring. It's a crazy system, it really is. What realistic chance do you have of achieving change? Um, well, politically, it's going to be an enormous battle, um, firstly, to get people to really understand the problems with the current system and then to get them to move towards changing it. Um, but I think what strengthens our chances is that the current system is is reaching the end of its its life, really. Uh, we've seen over the last few years that the policymakers and the, the experts really don't know what they're doing. And that's because they don't understand money. They don't understand that you can't, um, you know, when people have as much debt as they have now, the emphasis on getting banks lending again is, is you know, completely missing the point. Um, the kind of policy responses they're using, like trying to get more money to be lent to small businesses, there's no point lending to small businesses when people don't have any money to spend. Because those businesses will take on the debt, they'll expand, and then there'll be no customers. And then those businesses will fail as well. Um, so what I would say they need to do is to, you know, to take back this power to create money from the banks and then create this money without the debt. So you put new debt-free money into the economy. Um, what that will do is it will get more money into the hands of people that they can, re- can then spend or they can use to pay down the existing debts. Um, and that really, as far as I see it, is the only way we can get out of the situation we're in today. Um, so... Yeah, if you look at the lobbying power of the banks and the opposition, it, it seems like it's almost impossible. But uh, there really isn't an alternative. Uh, we can't keep the current system for that much longer because it's it's reached the end of its life. Change or bust. Yeah, essentially. Um, how familiar are you with the work of the economists of the Austrian school, Murray Rothbard and Ludwig von Mises and people like that? Yeah, reasonably familiar. Is that is that kind of free market school of thinking something that appeals to you, or is 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 or not? Well, um, I mean, I, I take angles from a lot of different thinkers on this subject. And um, uh, we, we occasionally get accused of being a bit left wing, which um, in reality, what we're suggesting is is quite pro-free market, because what we're suggesting by, by taking the power to create money away from banks, it becomes possible to allow them to fail. They become essentially um, investment firms and uh, providers of payment services, but they don't actually create money. Um, in the current system, the, the government always has to rescue the banks when they fail because the numbers on their balance sheet are actually the money that we use. And if that money disappears, then the economy you know, can go, go into a, a tailspin. Um, so what we're actually saying really is, is restoring the free market to banking, um, in a sense, in, in terms of turning them into true intermediaries between savers and borrowers and businesses that can actually fail. I mean, it really annoys me that um, banks have this exemption from the rules of the market that apply. You know, any any small corner shop, if they screw up, then they fail. Uh, a huge bank screws up and it gets rescued. And that's that's something that really needs to be changed. And nothing that the government has done up until now uh, will change that in any way. Very good. Well, Ben, um, it's a real pleasure to be talking to you and, and to have heard your thoughts and to to speak to someone who's, you know, done as much research as you have. Um, why don't you give out your website as, as, as we close this interview? Yeah, it's, uh, it's positivemoney.org. And um, for anybody who's interested in more about the issues, there are videos and presentations on there that explain this really clearly. It, it, absolutely. And one of your big kind of uh, points is that it has to be put in clear English. Yes. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. Well, Ben Dyson, uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Maybe, perhaps we can uh, do another interview in two or three months' time. Uh, where, maybe when your book comes out, you can talk about that. 
And um, the website is positivemoney.org. Thank you. Good to speak to you. Subscribe to the Gold Money newsletter at www.goldmoney.com to receive email updates on new articles, videos, and iTunes podcasts from our Gold Research section. Thank you.